Hi everyone, it's AJ from the future here. I just wanted to apologize. We had some technical issues with this episode, so the audio quality won't be quite as high as it normally is. And obviously we only came out with one episode this month. Going forward, it'll be business as usual, two episodes a month and our normal audio quality. But thanks for bearing with us and I hope you enjoy the episode. Fun Problems, a game design podcast for game designers who like to design games. I am a publisher and designer and developer. I call myself a triple threat. And AJ is a board game retailer who works for the world's best board game company. So between us, we have a fierce armada of knowledge to share with your ears. AJ, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about board game terminology. Now there's a bit of a backstory to this one. Do you want to dive into why we're talking about that today? Yeah, so multiple listeners reached out saying, hey, podcast is great. The best podcast in the entire world. Please have my family fortune. And we were like, cool. Okay, let's end the conversation here. But then they continued (laughs) and said, however, you do sometimes use terminology that we're not familiar with. So because AJ and I are very, very deeply immersed in the world of board games, we're doing that classic thing where we're using words that, you know, we hear all the time and we're very used to, but are just meaningless to other people. So we thought we would do a dedicated terminology episode. Uh, But first, we should do follow-up. Do you have any notes? I don't think I have any follow-up. I have a few bits of follow-up. So in a previous episode, I made this big song and dance out of saying, I don't give suggestions when I'm playtesting games. Don't do it, everyone. I don't give suggestions. I do. That was just flat out wrong. I give suggestions all the time. What I was trying to say was if someone is like, hey, Peter, fix this for me, I will often say no to that. If, if it's an idea already at the top of my head, I'll, I'll share it. But... The job of the game designer is to, you know, design the game and to solve the fun problems as per the name of this podcast. And so if, you know, while I'm playing, I will often throw out a dozen suggestions. And so I just didn't want to mislead people, but I shouldn't do that. It was me talking about ideal actions rather than what I actually do. So I just wanted to really emphasize that I do give suggestions. If you've seen me give suggestions, you listen to this. I don't want you to lose all confidence in me. I give suggestions all the fricking time, (laughs) but I shouldn't. I shouldn't give as many as I do. Well, part of it depends on context, right? In the Toronto playgroup that we have, it's very, very common to give suggestions, but these are like seasoned designers talking to seasoned designers. Suggestions come very welcome there. If there was someone who is who is a newer designer or even just the average designer, I, I wouldn't be trying to give suggestions unless they were explicitly asking for that. I wish I could say that, but as soon as I'm playing a game, I, I generally like straight out of the gate. I'm like, here's seven suggestions. So that was a, that was a case. I just wanted to follow up and clarify. I do do that. Do do as I say, not as I do. Later in that same episode, at some point, I said because of how physics works, I meant probability because of how probability works. I didn't write down the context of that. But if you were listening to that and just utterly lost, I meant uh, probability, not physics. And then the third one, this this was a big one. So we were talking about expansions. And I was talking about this idea that a lot of expansions are actually part of the original game. And then they just kind of get sectioned off and you release half the original design as the base game. And then the other half is the expansion. Very, very common. What I failed to do was mention a really, really good example, which is Night of the Mummy from Jellybean Games. In the original Dracula's Feast, the second game I ever designed back in uh, my Australia days, The original Dracula's Feast had Dracula's Feast and Night of the Mummy. It was all one big game. And I eventually did the thing we were talking about that episode where I siphoned it off and said, hey, this is going to be the expansion. And lo, almost a decade later, so it was. Very good example of the complexity thing, right? Because the reason why you section that off is because those characters were too complex for the base game, right? But 
Now it's later, it's a more seasoned audience. Now they're able to play with the more advanced roles without being such an issue, right? Yeah, a, a lot of the characters in Night of the Mummy revolve around this one specific mechanism where you uh, everyone closes their eyes and people hold up cards. And having that in the original meant that you kind of had to learn two games at once. You had to learn the base mm. rules and then this kind of subset on top of that. So complexity is one way of putting it. But for me, it's just like a whole different mechanic, which we were able to get enough content out of to do an entire second game, essentially. So it's uh, it was partially complexity, partially partially elegance which i guess is, is a is a antonym of complexity anyway right and as we've mentioned before if you've got a specific like one mechanic that has a lot of rules overhead for like just a couple cards it's usually worth cutting but if you've got a whole bunch of cards a whole bunch of content that makes use of that extra rules overhead then then it can be more worth it that that's an expansion yep <laughs> <laughs> all right anything else for uh, the follow-up i feel sufficiently followed up let's define some terms just before we start I want to talk about a few things that we're not going to be doing this episode because I think it's just good to to start off on that foot. What we're not going to do is we're not going to define what a game is. <laughs> I don't think there's a whole lot of value in doing that. We're not going to be defining what fun is. We will define what fun is, but that is like two episodes of content right there. <laughs> so we're not going to do that here. We're not going to talk about hobby gamer terms like grail game we're talking about design terms we're going to touch on mechanics and stuff but only ones that i think are important to know as designers and ones that we expect to bring up in conversation does that make sense to you peter do you, are, are you on board with that yeah no absolutely uh the, the list of things we're not going to do is infinitely long but i think those are the most <laughs> relevant things on that list <laughs> thanks thanks for always taking it as literally as possible very useful <laughs> I am a game designer. This is, this is how we do. <laughs> Let's start things off with a nice fancy term, heuristic. This is one of my favorite terms to use. Do you want to delve into this first? So for full context, uh, AJ has this list and I'm hearing them now for the first time. So I think a lot of these is going to be me saying, AJ, now that you've said the word, why don't you also define it? And I'll probably chime in with any uh, arguments sure. or counter interpretations or anything that you missed. But uh, no, heuristic is one of those ones that I would really have to sit down and work at because I know what it means in context, but I, I would struggle to define it. I am the everyman in this conversation. I'm the average <laughs> listener who's like, what? how do you define that? You, you are our, our word expert. Wow, what a what a role reversal. <laughs> I don't know if I'm qualified <laughs> for it, but I'll take the lead. I don't have definitions written out for these yet. So I'll also play the role of the dictionary today. Google tells me that a heuristic is when you enable someone to discover or learn something for themselves. Yes. So the idea is you will develop heuristics theoretically through gameplay, but they can also be given to you by other players who are more experienced, who can help you climb through the early stages of the learning curve and get to the meat of the game. We really jumped in head first, didn't we? This is quite a, quite a tricky term. <laughs> we did. I, I think heuristic is one of the most valuable words to have in our repertoire. So I think it's well worth spending a good amount of time sorting out. And I also think it's one of the most important concepts to be using and to be thinking about when you're designing games. Yeah, I think I think learning process is the is the simplest definition that makes sense in my head. So, uh, what would be an example of of using the term heuristic in a game design context? You want to build low level heuristics to be able to help new players have fun before delving into the more complex strategies. An example could be you might print bad cards in a drafting game because when players look at the cards, they'll say, "Oh, this card looks worse." than this other card. It really has some strategy to it, or they've 
realized a play pattern that makes sense. Or if you're playing Uno, this is an example from Richard Garfield's Characteristics of Games, where I think the term was popularized for game design use. You might want to thin out your suits, right? If you've got four blue and one red, and you can either play the red card or one of your blue cards, you want to play the blue one. And that will give you more options for future play. Almost short-suiting yourself in a trick-taking game. Yeah. Both of which might be terms we need to define. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I I think in the past we've brought up heuristics in the context of a game with organic rules or intuitive rules. Ah, I remember. I remember what it was. We were using it in terms of scaffolding, and we were using it in terms of Black Angel as a bad heuristic because there's nothing to give you a strategic idea of what you should be doing from the mechanics or the theme. There was nothing natural about it as opposed to games in more traditional Eurospheres that build off of real-world information that help you develop your heuristic for what you're supposed to be doing in the game. Gotcha. So uh, heuristics should be, I mean, you know, in an ideal game or in an ideal design, they should be natural and intuitive and player-driven rather than spelled out or unintuitive. Except if that's going to be the whole focus of your game, you know what you're doing, and you communicate to players very clearly And that's the only weird thing you're doing. So with all those caveats in there, you can look at something like Hanabi, right? In Hanabi, you get dealt cards and you face them backwards and you can't rearrange them. That is so unnatural to players. It would almost in any other context be considered terrible design. But because that's the whole thing of the game, it works. Now, I think that a better solution would be to not use cards in that instance because players have all these associations with cards. There's a version of Hanabi that uses dominoes instead of cards. Exact same game, exact same play. But you know what? When I teach that to new players, even non-gamers, they have such an easier time with it because it's much more natural than the card thing. Interesting. For me, when I'm playing Hanabi, the position in my hands is so key that I can't imagine playing with dominoes. So the thing with dominoes, right, is you can push them around the board. You can say, oh, this one's a five. I'm going to pull it really close to me so I don't forget. Or you can tilt it on its side and say, oh, yeah, all the ones that are tilted up are... Oh, I was imagining them in a um, a rummy cub or Scrabble style tray facing out. Oh, I see. What's the next word on our terminology list? This one doesn't have a clear term, but it gets used as character. As in, I'm going to choose this character for this game. And whenever you have a character-based game or a faction-based game, those can kind of be used synonymously in different genres. That just means that you're playing with special player powers, which I guess we should define asymmetry and symmetric. Symmetric games are where you are going to be both playing using the exact same set of rules and the exact same units or cards or resources. Everything is balanced except possibly there might be a starting player advantage, stuff like that. Classic example would be checkers or chess or pretty much any classic abstract game. Go. Go is probably one of the most symmetric games of all time. Absolutely. And then you have games that are asymmetric, and the most extreme examples of that we can get to are things like Root or Vast, where in Vast you are literally playing different games at the same table. A a very mainstream example of that might be Bridge, where you all start with the same things, but then one person bids a certain number of tricks that they can take, and now you've got half the players are kind of defending against that, one player is trying to score that, and one player sits out. So they're all kind of playing asymmetrically at that point. Interesting example. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that, but I, I do see what you're saying for sure. Next up, we have perceived value. Like we mentioned, I think it was exactly last episode, there's a lot of different factors that can contribute to a customer's perceived value. We'll go into that more some other time, but basically it just means when they see a price tag, do they think, oh, that's a great deal? Or do they think, 
what a ripoff. Or do they think that seems fair? You know what I mean? And if they think, wow, it's a great deal, it'll push more people who wouldn't have bought it initially to buy it, and obviously vice versa. Extreme examples of this would be if you go into any Target or Walmart and go to the board game section, you will see these huge boxes for $20. Mm-hmm. And often those are literally made as cheaply as possible because uh, I, I know one example, they use a, they use a pizza-style box. So it's not even like a telescoping box like you get in a normal retail game. It's a pizza box because they can print them as cheap as possible, but they look big. And so, you know, when, when the average consumer picks it up, they're like, wow, this is really big for $20. And then, and then at the other extreme would be something like a Tim Fowers game. Tim Fowers is a game designer who sells these tiny, tiny little games because he ships them all out himself. So he wants to save on postage. So he tries to make his game boxes as small as possible. And yet he still charges what would be perceived as a very high price for such a small box. He's got a whole brand built around that. So it's it's absolutely worth it. His games are amazing. That's a phenomenal example because he sells on a digital storefront, which means that the size doesn't matter. When Board Game Bliss carried his games, they were a really tough sell in store. I would put them up, no one would buy them. But online, we sold lots of copies. And it's because when someone picks up one of his games, that size of game usually costs about $20. And when they pick it up, there's that discrepancy. There's there's that uh, cognitive dissonance that really tears away at them and makes them feel like, if I buy this, I'm getting ripped off. The, the perception and the value don't match up. Yes, exactly. If Tim Fowers wanted to sell in retail, I would strongly suggest to him increasing the box size. Right now, it's perfectly compact. It's as compact as you could possibly get that those games it's incredible but if he wanted the games to have a better perceived value he'd give them a little bit more space to breathe <laughs> i'll tell you this is a lesson that jellybean games my company that aj also works for um had to learn the hard way we printed a bunch of games through kickstarter and sold them through kickstarter so there are these tiny tiny boxes to save on shipping and then we got into retail and our retail partners were like we can't sell this at this price it doesn't make any sense so now we print relatively large boxes they're still not huge or anything like that but Roughly a codename size box for $20 because codename sells for $20. And yeah, our early products, if you go back and look at them, they're the same price point, but the boxes are a fraction the size. They have the same amount of game in them, but we had to learn this lesson the hard way. Yep. And there's a lot more to say on that. We'll get to that in future episodes, but we just want to define terms as they keep saying. <laughs> so the next one up is framing. This is one of my favorite topics. Framing is the idea that the way that we present the game to the player will have an impact on them. There's a phenomenal episode of Ludology, another board game podcast about game design, Awkward Peter, who keeps insisting that this is the only one. <laughs> uh, definitely check out Ludology. They're not about game design. They're about designing games. It's completely, di- <laughs> completely different. If you haven't checked out Ludology, absolutely do it. We'll put a link in the show notes, but if you're listening to this, you must have listened to them already. <laughs> My favorite episode of Ludology is where they talk about how framing works. And the example that they gave was a study where you had people doing a a test and half the group was told to wear a white lab coat. The other half were told to wear a white painter's frock. It was the exact same coat, but the scores that they got were different. The people who were wearing the lab coat got better scores. And there's tons and tons of different examples we can use of this. But the basic idea is that if you frame something a particular way, it's going to have an impact on your audience. If you give a game a particular theme, that's going to change how people interact with it. We just did an example with this with Cartouche. Yeah, actually, just two days ago, AJ and I had a a call going through an upcoming Coffee Bean game, which is the other brand under Jelly Bean Games, which is a Euro tile placement game, all words that we'll hopefully define at some point. 
And one piece of feedback we got for the solo mode was that the AI, so the artificial opponent that you're playing against, was just too good at the game. They were they were scoring points too easily, and they were like, they shouldn't. It should be harder for them. Except the solo game was actually balanced around the AI being that hard. So rather than rewrite the AI, AJ, what did we do? What we did was we framed it differently, where now it's not just the AI with no thematic tie into it. We actually made it a literal AI. Now you're competing against this new technology that's going to take your job if you're not able to beat it. So now all of a sudden it's framed in their mind. Of course, this is going to be really, really hard. Of course, it's going to be insanely good at what it's doing. It's a computer algorithm that you're trying to beat, and you're just a regular human. Framing, you're right, is a really interesting topic because it can come in in theme. It can come in the art style. It can come in the description on the box. There's all kinds of ways that you can affect framing. And a lot of these are quote unquote publisher problems. But as I've said many times on this show, the easier you make it for a publisher to sign your game, the more likely it is that a publisher will sign your game. Absolutely. Next up is systemic. So systemic comes from video games. Systemic games are games that have systems, but more specifically, there's games with a lot of systems that can interact with each other. Famous examples would be things like Minecraft. If you take out this block, then this water pours down and then the water touches the lava and that hardens the lava. You know, there's all these different systems that are constantly bouncing off of each other. And a lot of the fun of play is in seeing how the systems interact. My first thought was SimCity, which is very much like, here are 50 systems around building a city, go. One of my favorite board game examples would be Kingdom Death Monster, where they've got this whole narrative system and all these, you have different stories for your civilization, for all these different individual characters. You have different uh, abilities and psychological disorders and physical disorders, and all these different things can come up over the course of the game that make it feel really natural and really organic and realistic. The issues with these in board games typically is these are very complicated things. They're very difficult to do. That's why video games do them a lot more. It's much easier to have the video game systems and software handling all the number crunching and all the different systems interacting than the player doing it, right? They're also incredibly hard to design because if you tweak one thing, the entire game can pivot to the left and you're like, oh no, I I added you know a $1 cost to this one worker placement space and now everyone's swimming in sheep. Like it's just, the, you get the weirdest interactions when you're doing a, a systemic game. Next up is affordance. I don't know this term. This is new to me. There's um there's a book that you would love, The Design of Everyday Things, and it talks about how the design of everyday things are deeply affected by the affordances we give them. As an example, you know uh you know what doors? You've you've heard of doors, right? Yeah, yeah, Doris the Explorers. <laughs> so have you ever walked up to a door and you pushed on it and you're like, oh, it's it's a pull door, or vice versa. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so what happens is if there's a handle on it that you grasp with your hand, that feels like you're supposed to pull it. But if there's a crash pad on it, that feels like you're supposed to push up against it because there's nothing to comfortably hold on to. And so that's how doors need to be designed. And these are the types of things that you'll never notice until they're done wrong, you know, where uh, if you design something just a little bit wrong, or if you don't take into account the ergonomics or how humans naturally want to do things, you can cause some serious problems in your design. The best example of this for me is Charterstone. Uh, I, I like a lot of Jamie Stegmaier's games and designs and his uh, various publications. 
Charterstone, I thought, was an ergonomic mess. I felt like almost everything in the game was exactly backwards. Like, I, I, I played through the entire campaign, and I don't think we did a single game where we weren't like, uh, oh, wait, no, we did something wrong, because we were so often doing what felt right, even though that was the exact opposite of what you were meant to do. I'll give you an example, uh, slight spoilers for Charterstone. At one point, you unlock, like, troubles or calamities or something like that, and there are these little colourful cubes, these really pretty colourful cubes that you spread across the board, and as a hero, you have to go and clear out these troubles. So one of them might be like rat infestation or plague or disease or corruption or something like that. So whenever you clear an area of these, you collect them and you take them into your supply. Everything about this feels wrong. Like, sure, I understand like clearing corruption as an action, but corruption being a quite pretty little cube that you then collect and keep, like... It just it doesn't it doesn't fit in my head right. Like you shouldn't collect corruption when you destroy it. You should destroy it. You should throw it out. It should go out of the game. It shouldn't be collected as a trophy of like, haha, I destroyed corruption. Now I have a little pile of corruption on my character. Just so unintuitive. I don't know if you remember this, but I was hoping you'd bring up that exact example. We talked about this on the car ride where we decided to start this podcast. <laughs> 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 so what does affordance mean? I still don't understand the exact context of the word. So an affordance is giving something that the player can interact with. So basically, if you have a list of actions in Pandemic, you can move, you can fly by discarding this card. Each one of those things is an affordance. An affordance is essentially an action you can take within the game. And the affordance needs to be designed in such a way that it is congruent with what the player is expecting and what they need. Gotcha. I read a really good article a while back, I'll see if I can find it for the show notes, which was uh, verb-based design. I thought that was a really interesting concept. And it was just like, every action you do is a verb that you as your character, whoever you represent in the game, should take. Next up is on-ramping, which we've touched on quite a few times recently, and we're going to do a whole episode on soon. But the basic idea of on-ramping is it's trying to get someone from zero to actually being able to enjoy your game. So the, the term comes from literally having a ramp for people to get up to make it easier for people to get from the bottom to somewhere that they are trying to go. You need to think about how can players skip over the boring stuff and get past the learning curve and get right to the meat of the game. If players are having fun on the third turn of your game, they're more likely to play the entire game than if they're on turn six and still not understanding what's, what's happening. I actually just spent the day today designing a game called Providence with Alex Cutler, who I'm staying with, and it's an interesting game. I, I won't go into detail, but as we were playing, I was like, okay, so once we get the core mechanisms really locked down, we got to work on on-ramping because it, it's, it's a game with 50 different worker placement spaces that you need to kind of not understand straight away, but you're presented with straight away. And I'm a little nervous about the potential on-ramping issues of that. I can't wait to dig into that on our on-ramping episode. <laughs> Next up is UX or UI. User interface or user exchange. What's the X? <laughs> user experience. Experience, it's yes. Plus, right? <laughs> it's not spelled X, but user you say X. <laughs> These are actually different terms, but they're pretty interlinked. UI is user interface. It's the thing that you look at and can communicate with. Now, this typically comes from like programming and video games. Think of like menus and stuff like that. Apps. Yep. Apps. If you've ever been opening up something and then what you're looking for is hidden within three sub menus that aren't intuitive to get into, that's poor UI. 
Good UI, you never notice it. It's very smooth. Things are well organized. There's everything that you need, but not too much. I think that Mac got really, really popular by knowing how to do UI properly and trimming out all the extra features that their users just don't care about on PCs. I think that's a big part of why it got popular. I think that UI is one of the things that new designers most frequently overlook. And I think it'll make a huge difference in people enjoying your game faster versus not. Yeah, again, to use Providence's example, we were playing today and we printed a copy last week and I printed a new copy today. And in the process, I just took out some colors. I tend to put lots of colors in everything. And it was startling how much of an immediate difference it made to the point where if this had been the first version that we'd played, if we hadn't played the more colorful version, we might have gone back to core mechanics and reworked core mechanics because it was so hard to follow what was happening. But by having these colors, you can kind of follow how one board leads to the next to the next. In a way, yeah, I was really staggered by the difference. I think if there was one thing that if you could look at the same designers' designs from five years ago and now, that would probably be the key thing that you'd see the difference in. Because I know for my games, you go back five, six years and my games are unintelligible. You can't work out what's happening. Whereas nowadays, I'm very proud of my clean UI and easy to access UI. Yeah, I think this is one thing that designers really pick up on fast for good reason, because it just affects the quality of experience of playing your games so much more than pretty much anything else. (laughs) It's a little intermediate to be suggesting to beginner designers, ironically, but (laughs) it is, like you said, staggering. You can have a game and think that there's a problem with the design, but really it's a problem with the UI or it's a problem with the, with the UX, with what the person is trying to do or fundamentally understands about the game. I think you mentioned one of the early things that you started doing was adding reference cards. And I think that's a really good idea, especially for more complex games. Yeah. I remember at one point I was playing with a new designer and his game was really good. And I was like, look, literally send me your files. And the next day I sent them back to him exactly the same content, exactly the same game. I didn't make a single developmental pass. All I did was completely transform the UI. Because I, I like the game and it just it made it so much more playable. Just like the difference between, you know, playing on, on something printed out of Excel and something designed in a, in a nice design software. It was crazy. So what is UX? So UX is user experience and it's very close to the same. It's I feel like there's going to be some listeners who, who are calling in and saying that I'm going to incorrectly split hairs or I should have been splitting <laughs> hairs more user experience is a bit broader. It's saying, what's the bigger picture here? UI is part of this, but what does it look like as a user when they sit down, they hear the rules, they look at the player mat, they look at the components, what is their experience and how is that off from what your vision of what their experience should be essentially? For me, UI is the noun and UX is the verb. I create a UI and then the user experiences that UI. And what you should be doing is really observing how they experience it and then updating the UI accordingly. And this, this is what I was trying to say earlier when I was saying that like this is one of the biggest things you'll see designers improve at because the more you see people play your game and struggle with things, the more the better you get at fixing it and the more changes you make. And then the next game, you kind of skip the problems and go straight to a better UI. It snowballs so quickly. Thanks a lot for making me do all the definitions so then you can get the good ones. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm joining in. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm contributing. <laughs> I, I obviously appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> I want to show that your bad UI doesn't give them a bad UX. That's the <laughs> shape of a game. Now, this is a term that I think that most game designers haven't heard before. Have you heard this one? Oh, yeah. I think about the shape of a game all the time. <laughs> I have never heard another designer talk about the shape of the game, except for the person who I 
obviously heard it from. I think I literally did a Metatopia talk called The Shape of Your Game. I think I think I did an entire like one hour video presentation about The Shape of Your Game. It's something I'm fascinated by. Okay, so if you did a one hour presentation, I think you can give the definition for this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was years ago. I'm trying to remember what I said. <laughs> I remember my presentation went heavily into film structure because I'm a screenwriter. And so for me, the shape of a game is a very ephemeral term. I can give mine. Yeah, give yours and I'll then jump in and correct it. <laughs> <laughs> the shape of the game is the space that the game takes up in the life of the player. This is the amount of time it takes to play the game. It's the amount of time it takes to read the rules. It's the effort required in getting players together to play it. It's the table space that it takes up. It is any barrier and any cost associated with your game. That is the shape of the game. The shape that it takes in the players' lives. Yeah, that's not at all what I was talking about in my, in my speech. Oh, really? it's, it's good. I think it's completely, I think it's an excellent definition. No, I was talking more about um, the, the shape of a decision tree within your game. Oh, yeah. So, uh, and, and this, this is why I was using 3X structure as my example, because 3X structure has this really clear graph of rising action and falling action and rising action. And most importantly, it starts very quiet and ends very quiet. Like there's kind of a, not quite a bell curve exactly, but almost like a shifted bell curve where it starts very simple and ends very simple. And in the middle, it gets quite complex. And so I, I remember using Feast for Odin as an example. Feast for Odin has 60 worker placement spots, something crazy like that. And you look at that and you're like, oh, that's unplayable. No one can do that. The decision tree from turn one is ridiculous, except a lot of those worker placement spots have costs. So at the start of the game, there's maybe 10 or 15 that you can even consider using. Like it's a very, very limited start. And then by the end, sure, you've got the resources to afford everything, but you know that the end of Feast Frozen is coming because it's a round-based game. And so at the end, there's only, again, maybe 10 to 15 spots that are even vaguely viable because they get you victory points and nothing else matters. Yeah, for the shape of a game, if you look at the decision tree of a game, you would see that it starts very limited, ends very limited, and really balloons out in the middle. I, I think your definition is much more useful, but uh, <laughs> that's how I defined it in my talk. So I wouldn't say that's the shape of the game. I would agree that that's, I guess, the shape of the decision tree of it. I've heard a, a term used to define that before. I think it's the arc, the arc of the game. And you can use that in terms of like a narrative arc or in terms of a decision arc or in terms of just a general ramp up. You know, there's a lot of people who if they play a game and the last round is the same as the first round, it just doesn't feel right to them. They need to see escalation occur during the course of the game. Progress, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's I think that's uh, all very valuable. And again, I want to dig into more on that later. But for now, <laughs> I want to talk about cognitive load. This is another really oh, important topic. This is a great one. Yeah. I'll, I'll jump in. I'll do it. So cognitive load is basically the amount of mental strain required to play the game. One of the interesting things about cognitive load is that it differs from person to person. So if I'm really, really good with numbers, a very mathy game is going to be a lower cognitive load for me than it is for you. If you're really good at colors and shapes, then maybe something like Mysterium is going to have a very different cognitive load than it will for me. The cognitive load is basically how much mental work are you making the players do to play your game. Critically, this changes not only from player to player, but over time for each player. And part of that is super obvious. You play the game more and you get better at it. But part of it is a little bit more nuanced than that. Part of it is if you play the same game a lot, you don't make decisions the same way. You skip over decisions because you've already built heuristics. You already know what to do when that situation arises. So in matter of fact, some people playing the game make fewer decisions than people who are newer to the game. 
And that can lead to some strange situations where one person's complaining about another person's AP, but really they're just past the point that that person was already at. They already went through that arc and now they've come out the other side and have those shortcuts. Yeah, a huge factor too is their, I I call it gaming literacy. If you've never, ever, ever played a trick-taking game, then jumping straight into the crew, which is a trick-taking game with a bunch of extra rules on, is going to be just a harder experience for you. I'm designing two worker placement games at the moment. I've run into this experience a few times where I've sat down, I've started teaching someone the game, and they've said, okay, cool, I think that all makes sense. Just one question, how do I do anything? Like, I don't have any cards in hand that tell me what to do, or like, I don't know where my pieces move. And I have to realize I've skipped over the concept of a worker placement game because for me, it's it's like teaching someone how to read before learning a book. I've played so many worker placement games that I don't even think to explain that. So that's something I always make sure to ask at the start of every playtest. Hey, have you played a worker placement game before? 90% of the time I get a yes or 95% of the time I get a yes and 90% of the time I got a yes, Peter, obviously. But that other 5% is so vital because if they haven't, the rest of the explanation is going to make no sense and the cognitive load is going to be overwhelming for them. Game literacy is a good term. I think a broader word that I would be using instead is scaffolding. I think scaffolding makes a lot of sense. You're building on preconceived knowledge and that's not just game knowledge, right? That's also real world knowledge that you bring to the game, thematic tie-ins, stuff like that. Absolutely. But you're absolutely right. When I'm playing games with my hardcore game group, I've got one friend who just shortcuts absolutely everything to a fault because we're all hardcore gamers. Yeah. They'll say things like, the hand management is Century Spice Road. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) And then we start playing based off of that, right? There was one time he literally taught me a game by saying, you already know how to play this game. Ask me if an icon comes up that you don't understand. (laughs) Like All he did was explain the round structure. Like you take an action, I take an action. I could see that there was an arrow rotating to the right. So I was like, each turn I tap a card. He's like, yeah, you got it. And like tapping the card is another one of those game literacy things. Tapping comes from Magic the Gathering, and it means to rotate a card 90 degrees to show that you've used it on that turn or that round and can't use it again. And that's spent. Yes. So the more common term is exhaust and refresh. Another big factor for cognitive load is exactly what we're talking about, but at the strategy level. When we're not in coronavirus season, I play hundreds, if not thousands of new games every year. I will sit down in an evening and learn seven, ten new games because that's that's what I go to game design nights for. And because of that, I've gotten very good at reading, okay, this thing exists in this capacity. So they probably want me to do one of these two things. And within a few turns, I'm like, okay, they want me to either max out, you know, go in one direction as hard as I can or spread myself as thin as possible over everything. That generally most complex games fall into one of those two categories, either go all in on one thing, ignore everything else or try to do everything equally. And so little stuff like, oh, there's going to be a drought in three rounds. So I need to start saving now is a strategic decision that I'm already scaffolded onto that I've already learned from other games and I can just copy paste and apply it here. I'll tell you the industry term is big box retailer. I don't know where that comes from. That's the term that I always use instead of mass market if someone complains about mass market. But then what do you do about the players? Like mass market can refer to the players as well as the games as well as the retailers. Oh yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, big box audience. (laughs) So what mass market means is it means essentially very, very casual, non-enfranchised gamers. So this is someone who has only played Monopoly, Risk, Taboo. Scrabble. Yep. All things you could find at Walmart 10 years ago, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you know. (laughs) If you would see this game pop up in a movie or TV show, that's a mass market game, generally speaking. And I think that the term is valuable because maybe not that exact word, like I said, But it's really important to know who your audience is and who your audience isn't. And there's a huge distinction between 
mass market, and more enfranchised hardcore gamers. Now that we're talking about it, the other term that I've heard used is casual, casual gamers. I resist that one a bit because I think that that implies a bit more than it does. There's families that I know that would not refer to themselves even as casual board gamers, but they've got a copy of Monopoly. Many, many households haven't touched Monopoly in years and still have a copy of Monopoly. When, when I'm using the terms, I actually use, in addition to hardcore and franchised gamers and mass market, I use casual as the people that are on the peripheral edges of hardcore. If you are a hardcore gamer yourself, you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, you know your friends who aren't as into games as you, but will always come over and play Cash and Guns or Coup with you every time. That to me is the casual gamer. They might own a couple games themselves, but mostly they just play a couple games to death. And it's more about the social time with their friends than is about the game. You know what my preferred term for hardcore gamer is? Probably something really clever <laughs> i don't <laughs> uh no it, it's, it's not an invention of mine it's just the term i always use hobby gamer oh yeah i really like hobby gamer because weirdly enough it sounds like i'm saying casual gamer because casual hobby sound uh, synonymous but what i'm actually saying is a gamer for whom gaming is their hobby their hobby is gaming what do you want to do tonight we want to game that's my hobby and so I really like hobby gamer because I know hardcore for me is a little too intense. Whereas hobby gamer, I'm like my, my friends uh, who would never listen to this, <laughs> Frankie and Jenna, who are two of my closest friends in Toronto. I would call them hobby gamers, but I wouldn't call them hardcore gamers. They have Gloomhaven. They've played Gloomhaven, but they would never play Lisboa. So for me, Lisboa, a hardcore gamer would play, but a hobby gamer wouldn't necessarily go into the hardcore games while still having gaming as their primary hobby and, you know, following the newsletter and seeing what else is up there and refreshing Kickstarter every day. I mean, I think you're being a little gatekeeping saying that Gloomhaven isn't a hardcore game. I think Gloomhaven's a pretty hardcore game. It's interesting because I would not say that it's a hardcore game. I'd say it's a hobby game. Like if you play Gloomhaven, that's your hobby. And I'm not saying it's a simple game, but they are not heavy gamers. They would never play a five-hour game. They would never play Twilight Imperium. They would never play something that crunches your brain so much you can't think. Gloomhaven is more approachable than you think. I disregard, but carry on with your point. I'll, I'll use Lisboa as an example. They would just never enjoy Lisboa. No no part of Lisboa would ever appeal to them. Yet they'll play Gloomhaven because even though it's complex, it still has a lot of hook, a lot of really good on-ramping. It does a lot of stuff that mean that you don't have to be a hardcore gamer to enjoy it. I have more I would argue with that, but I want to move on instead. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll, we'll just stick with that for now. Next up is flow state. Do you, uh, do you want to go into flow state? A lot of these terms aren't unique to board games, of course, but flow state is this idea that when you get into the zone, then you stop noticing individual parts of the game. It all kind of comes together as a cohesive whole. There's this really good graph. Have you seen it? Yeah. Do you, do you want to describe what that is? You've got skill on one axis and then you've got the challenge on the other. And basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to straddle this perfect line between the two extremes. So if you can get dead center in the middle of those two things, then you're hitting flow state. If you're too low on the challenge, then that's going to cause a problem because your players are going to get bored. But if you have a super challenging game, then you're going to feel anxious or possibly slip back into boredom. But if you can thread the needle there and get the balance between challenge and your player's skill, then you hit that flow state where it's like cognitive ease and you're really comfortable. I'm just defining it for you now. <laughs> no, it's great. Flow state is something that you get in, in all creative endeavors, which I include playing board games in. And oh man, if you can hit it, that's the dream. That's the dream, man. That's the dream. <laughs> We've used a term before called blind playtesting, which we are retiring and replacing with cold playtesting because it is not ableist and because it is, I think, actually more accurate to what you're doing. 
I think it's just a flat out better term. I'm moderately PC, but I do get annoyed when people are like, we can't say this word anymore. And I'm like, it was fine. In this case, I think yeah, you brought this to my attention. I was like, oh, well, obviously we're going to replace this term because it's just a better term. It's more descriptive. It's more apt. It's just flat out better in every way. What is cold playtesting? Cold playtesting is where you get someone to playtest your game, but you are not a participant either as a player or as a rules teacher. You are just observing and preferably, if possible, you're not even in the room with them. The way that you'll do this is you just give them the game with the rules. They'll read the rules on their own. They'll play the game on their own. And if possible, if you can have a, a video set up recording what happens there, that's the money because then you've got a pure distilled form of people actually playing the game with no outside influence of you. You can see what rules they get mixed up. You can see what parts were fun for them. You can see if they get bored. And if you're not there, it takes the pressure off them. They don't feel bad about hurting your feelings because you're not over their shoulder. I am evangelical about cold playtesting. Not only do I do it for every game I design, whether I'm going to publish it through Jelly Bean or Coffee Bean or sign it to someone else, we have this entire process, which you're actually in charge of. This is your job at Jelly Bean Games. We run extensive cold playtesting. Do you want to talk about that briefly? This is already well tested at this point. We think that the game is good. We want to get more sets of eyes on it and see what they actually think about the game. And this is less a, did you have fun with it? And more did this strategy feel overpowered or whatever? We'll write up a quick questionnaire. You want to keep this really brief. You don't want to waste people's time on things. And you just want to ask them, you know, how long was the game? How many people did you play with? Because those are very important pieces of information. Ask them, is there anything that felt overpowered? Is there anything that felt underpowered? Stuff like that. And then once you collect enough of this feedback, you can start to see patterns. And of course, you'll also notice things like spelling errors or poorly explained rules. And as we do this, we're updating the prototype constantly so that we have the most up-to-date version for people testing so we aren't wasting our time. This is the context of rewriting the description for the AI because we got some feedback saying it's too hard and so we rewrote not the AI but the rules around it. Not only will we probably do multiple episodes about cold playtesting, I have done a full episode about cold playtesting on the Board Game Design Lab, which is another excellent, excellent board game design podcast. Distinct from designing a game or game design, <laughs> board game design completely different thing. Top-down design. This means that we're starting with the thematic idea, or this could also refer to as experience-first design. We've talked about that quite a bit, so we're not going to rehash it. And then you work your way down to think, what mechanics would support that feeling, that experience, that IP, that theme, and you design the mechanics to match your theme. That sounds like there's going to be a directly opposing one coming up, AJ. Bottom up, where, of course, you start with the mechanics, and then once you've got those figured out, you figure out how to thematically wrap them. Yeah, I'll, I'll give two examples. One is robots, or I need a better name for that. If anyone has a better name for the game robots, by the way, please write in and let me know. It's about a bunch of robots rebelling against a master robot who crushes them into cubes. This isn't the first time you brought it up. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's killing me. I need a better name for this game. It's, it's coming out this year, and I still don't have a, a good name for it. Are we supposed to do a workshop? shop for that where we do it together and then make that like a bonus episode or something oh yeah yeah we are gonna do that so look look forward to that uh but if you want to solve it before that you'll save us from doing a bonus episode <laughs> robots was very much a bottom up design i came up with this central mechanism and then built out built out built out rethemed it to be robots built other stuff around it and it, it got better and better and better he said modestly whereas a game that i haven't quite cracked yet is called alien poker have you played my game alien poker no but you've told me about it sounds fun 
that one, I literally have a very good hook and a very good pitch, and I've not been able to design to that pitch yet. The pitch is that you're a human who snuck onto an alien planet. They're all playing alien poker. They all know the rules of this game. You don't. So you're trying to bluff your way through an entire game of alien poker. They get points by either winning the game or by spotting the human. You get points by either winning the game by working out the rules as you go or by being undetected. Great pitch. I really want to make this game. I've not quite nailed the mechanics yet. I've gotten close a few times and I will crack it eventually, but that, that's a example of a top-down design. Peter, I want to burst your bubble here, but just so you know, having a great idea doesn't mean very much. <laughs> As a quote I really like, a great idea is only 1%, but it's the most important 1%. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> I thought that was great. As a publisher, I am more interested in good ideas that I know I can turn into good games than, you know, fun mechanisms that will never be a great idea. Definitely. Next up is Grok. Oh, great term. Love this one. I was about to say, I really hate this word, but it is a great term. Oh, I love it. Grok just means understand it. If you can grok something, that means you have internalized the rules and you can now start playing the game. You can make decisions based off of the things that you have internalized. It's like intuitively comprehend is how I would define that term. Once again, swoops in with the clean one. <laughs> <laughs> and something that doesn't help you grok is fiddly. Something that is fiddly is something that takes multiple steps more so than probably you want it to or something that requires a lot of physical manipulation if you have to move the tokens from point A to point B. But then you have to slide them over back to point A for this phase. All these different steps that you have to do yeah. during setup. All these different things are examples of, of fiddly bits in games that ideally you would trim off. My strength as a developer is smoothing games out, which is typically increasing elegance, cutting edge cases, and reducing feedliness. Those are the three things that I sometimes overly focus on, but those, those are my three things that I really grind away from games. Related, actually, I'll bring up now is Bitsy. I think Bitsy is a really good term, and it's not even a bad thing. I've got a game coming out later this year from Pandasaurus Games, and I would describe Pandasaurus Games as very, very Bitsy, which is to say they have a lot of bits. <laughs> very simple term. So they have many small things, or they have very interesting intricate pieces. They make very bitsy games. I don't have a specific metric for this, but I can tell you, I can literally glance at a game and tell you if there's a problem. <laughs> I look at the board, I'm like, oh, 13 different kinds of tokens. Just instantly, you got a problem. You immediately grok it. <laughs> I grok that there's a problem. <laughs> a really clean way of getting elegance and trimming off some of those fiddly bits is in coupling. Coupling is when you have two systems tied together. So if I take one action, it has two consequences. That's a great way of cleaning systems up while actually in many cases increasing the amount of depth in the game. I'll give you my favorite example of all time, which is the two-player version of Caverna. So not the full Caverna, but the special two-player only game. In Caverna by Uwe Rosenberg, you are playing dwarves who are like mining out caverns, thus Caverna, and then adding buildings in. So at the start of the game, you shuffle up all these rubble pieces, put them face down on your board. Every time you mine out a new space, you flip that rubble token and it moves onto the market as a building. So on the bottom of every rubble token is a building that you can buy. Now you could have had these as two separate mechanisms. You could have had, you know, you get rid of rubble, you take it out of the game, and then every round a new building comes out for purchase. Would have worked totally fine. But the beautiful coupling of those two mechanisms, oh my goodness, it is my favorite example of all time. I'll bring it up at every opportunity. My favorite example of uh, coupling is Trader of Osaka or Traders of Carthage. Have you played that? I have not. It's kind of like a gamer's ticket to ride. You have a row of cards that are available to you and you also have a preview row of cards that are currently not available to you. On your turn, you either pick up a card and add it to your hand 
you place a reserve token saying, I'm going to basically remove this. No one else can have it, except I can take it on a future turn. Or you can buy out the row. And each card has a number on it. The number on it, if it's in your hand, is the value. And if it's on the row that you want to buy, it's the cost. If I take a card, I have just reduced the cost of the row for you. I have now added that card to my hand, which I can use to buy future things. And the colors of the the suits of the cards matter when they're purchased. They affect different things on the board. So there's that tie-in as well. But then on top of that, each card also has another way that they affect the board. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. (laughs) Three different actions you can take. You can pick up a card. You can buy the row using cards you picked up. Or you can reserve a card. So it's almost two actions, really. But the amount of depth, the amount of nuance to each of those actions that you take, it dramatically changes the board state every time anyone takes a single action. And they're coupled in overlapping ways. I am in awe of it. I think it's amazing. Obviously, the Caverna is my favorite single mechanism that couples, but a game that couples everything, I would say, is San Juan, which is the card version of Puerto Rico. That game is like coupling from every possible angle. Incredible. I really love San Juan. One of my favorite games. Great example. So here's one that I imagine you don't have any strong thoughts on. Input and input randomness. Ah, ah. So that's all for this week for Fun Problems. Thanks so much for listening. I hope that you've had a... Uh... God, I hate those times. So the... Oh. that a lot of people, myself included for the record, are trying to push is pre and post decision randomness, which is slightly better. Have you seen my Twitter thread on this? It, that exploded. That was my first time like... I was the one who suggested pre and post decision randomness. <laughs> I thought it was Isaac Shalev. Huh. We both did actually. I think uh, we both commented at the same time on the thread. Anyway. We'll, we'll put a link in the comments, but this, this is my first time exploding on Twitter about game design, and it was a... Intense experience. People have very strong opinions on this, including me. (laughs) So let's define the term. Input randomness is when a randomized event happens and then you make your decision. Classic example would be a spread of cards comes out and everyone drafts from that. So that's a random spread of cards from which you then have to make a decision. Output randomness is I make a decision and then I roll to see the final precise result of what that decision was. The classic example being risk. (laughs) I attack you and then I find out what happens. I'll I'll briefly say the reason I hate them is because not only can I not keep which one is which straight, I've listened now to multiple, more than two podcasts where someone has done an entire episode on input and output randomness and had to add a disclaimer at the start saying, hey, just so you know, we got these terms exactly reversed for the entire podcast. This has happened three times that I've heard on different board game podcasts. This is a real issue that tells me these words have a terrible heuristic. (laughs) These are terms coined by Jeff Engelstein of Ludology. Again, phenomenal podcast, brilliant guy. What was interesting to me is there was even an episode of Ludology where they had a guest and they were talking about input and input randomness on it and the guest got mixed up. (laughs) (laughs) They're just not good terms. Love the concept. Oh yeah, yeah. Amazing concept, but terrible, terrible terminology. So here's one where I think I made the term unless you've heard a term for this before. Basically, this is an idea that I've seen a lot of. It's called Brandonitis. <laughs> I'm coining this term unless you can tell me that someone else has done this first. The term I want to define here is a tag. A tag is a creature type or maybe an element on a spell, earth, water, wind, fire. And it doesn't necessarily mean anything inherently on its own, but other cards will refer to that. If you're using a fire spell against me and I use this water element spell, my water element spell will negate your fire one. This card is a beast. That means nothing, but now I've played this Beast Master card and it gives a bonus to all my beasts. 
The best example I can think of for this would be Sentinels the Multiverse, which is a cooperative superhero game from a decade ago now. I think they're about to relaunch it. And in that game, every character does damage to other characters. That's that's the core premise of the game. You're superheroes who are damaging supervillains. And every single type of damage has a type. So there's fire damage, ice damage, psychic damage, toxic damage, electric damage, etc, etc. I think there's 13 or something like that. And originally, I think they were mostly just thematic. As more and more expansions came out, more and more stuff started saying, okay, we care about this type of damage. We care about this type of damage. It was a really nice way of adding theme because you could have a villain come out who was immune to toxic damage, which no other villain had ever been. And you're like, oh, because he's a rat. He lives in the sewers or whatever. Would that classify as what you're defining here? That's exactly it. Yep. My favorite examples come from Kingdom Death Monster because that's such a thematic first game. It's quintessential Ameritrash, which we'll get to. <laughs> but the, the idea of that is I slay this big slug creature and I now pull out its stink gland, and I can use that to cover myself in this liver, and it'll provide me some protection, but it has the keyword stinky. It's like, what does that mean? Right now, it's flavor text, which is great. It's a really clean way of doing flavor text. But then, all of a sudden, there's an enemy who is blind, and all they can do is smell. Anyone who's stinky, they're laser-focused <laughs> on, right? And so yeah. all of a sudden, you take this thing that, that didn't matter, and now it matters, and that just feels like such a thematic connection, right? It's so clean. I think we've talked about this on a previous episode, but let's quickly define keyword because it's a very closely related term. A keyword can either be a word or I would also say icons are keywords in a sense. And essentially it's something that refers to a broader explanation. So on a card, it might say trample. What that means is that extra damage goes over and hits the next creature because the creature that's attacking is so big, it tramples over it. So you've got this thematic mental model now. So if you're going to have an ability on a lot of different cards, rather than typing it out every time, which you generally should do anyway, you can have the keyword. And it's less about saving space on complex cards, though that is a thing. It's more about being able to have a player glance at a card, read Trample, and not have to read the whole rule sentence that goes along with it. It's like a time saver and a mental shorthand for players communicating with the game. Builds a common language. Next up is RNG. This is an easy one. (laughs) (laughs) This one stands for Random Number Generator. It's literally just a fancy way of saying randomness. Anything that is random in a game can be referred to as RNG. Just, Just common slang, but comes up enough. I think that's worth mentioning. Yeah, this one also comes from video games. Let's say you're fighting against a robot and sometimes you do the exact same actions and win. Sometimes you do those exact same actions and lose. The reason you lost would be called RNG because the computer is behind the scenes generating random numbers that determine how well you do. It's used in board games, but it comes from video games, I think. The one thing that I might want to touch on is we had a really interesting discussion about is rock, paper, scissors random? The way that you defined randomness is that it's something that the game imposes on the players. Therefore, rock, paper, scissors is deterministic. I would call rock, paper, scissors, I would call it scissors, paper, rock because I'm Australian, but I would call rock, paper, scissors unpredictable, not random. And I think that a lot of people use unpredictable and randomness synonymously, which is fine. So if, if you ever find yourself in an argument about randomness, as game designers often do, just stop for a moment and define terms. For me, randomness is like you said, when the game imposes on you, rolling a dice is not a choice that anyone's making. You don't get to choose what number comes up. Whereas if you and I are both picking between rock, paper, and scissors, then that is a choice that each of us are making. I don't consider that random, but other people would, and, and that's fine too. The example that we had that really solidified it, Skull versus Coup in this conversation, because both of them are bluffing games. You don't know the exact outcome when you call someone's bluff, similarly to rock, paper, scissors. But in Coup, you have a lot of randomness. You've got the different cards, but in Skull, 
It's completely deterministic. You chose to put exactly the tiles down that you wanted. You chose exactly how much to bid. You chose exactly which tiles to flip. So it's completely deterministic. Both of them are unpredictable, but one of them is random. One of them has no randomness. Absolutely. So I think we have enough terms that we might have to make this a two-parter. How do you feel about that, AJ? (laughs) I think a lot of people would get a lot of value out of us just going through terms all day, honestly. (laughs) So hopefully you found this useful. If there's any terms that we don't cover in these two episodes, email us and let us know. But first, well, we're not going to do a preview for next episode because we're going to be doing more terms, but I believe we have fun at some point in this podcast. Is that right, AJ? This is the uh, only point of the podcast you're allowed to have fun. Everything up until now has been problems, and now finally we get to fun. We reversed it, just just to confuse you, just to keep you on your toes. My fun question for this week is, what is your favorite fictional book? Okay, so... (laughs) I'm such a game designer. My first impulse is like, wait a second. Do you mean, what's my favorite book that doesn't exist? Because that's a different question uh, to what is my favorite fiction book. Do you mean fiction book or fictional book? Because they are two different categories, and I'm trying to decide what I would answer for the for the. Uh, for the you know what? One. I want both. I want both. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite fiction book would have to be 1984. I just think that's an incredible book. I haven't read it in more than a decade now, but it completely changed my life. So I always put that down as my favorite. Everyone knows what 1984 is. The Uploaded is much less well-known. The Uploaded, the concept is that when you die, you get uploaded, that's the name of the book, into like a AI heaven, basically. Everyone goes to heaven, but it's purely scientific. It's not religious. It's kind of about the struggle of all those people who live in this AI world, who need humans on Earth to stay alive to maintain the machines, otherwise the whole thing will go down. And the humans on Earth who can see heaven and know that if they die, they'll get there. And what stops them from all just like killing themselves and going to heaven? It's a really, really interesting like concept and book, and it's so well written i really love it he's my favorite author ferret steinmetz yeah the uploaded would be my, my answer for that uh what's your favorite fiction book while i think about what my favorite fictional book is my favorite fictional wait, book. wait your favorite fictional book or your favorite fiction book oh my gosh <laughs> my favorite <laughs> book of the fictional genre <laughs> of the fiction genre is that say, what's the fictional genre like uh <laughs> spooky pants <laughs> spooky uh... pants love romance nautical aren't we short on time <laughs> <laughs> my favorite book that is not nonfiction <laughs> is called Fifth Business. I had a grade 12 English assignment. I had to write an essay on some, you know, on one of these old classic books. I looked at them all and I was like, I can't pick. Like, what am I working off if I have no information here? So I said to my teacher, listen, just give me the one that you suggest. And she got <laughs> so excited and she handed me this book and she's like, this one. I didn't like this teacher at all. I don't know why I picked her favorite book. That's that's probably asking for trouble. It's a fictional autobiography. Ooh. And when they're writing about themselves as a kid, the fictional author tries to write as though they were themselves when they were young. <laughs> so when they write, they'll have like gaps in their thinking and their logic. Just like, you know, you or I had gaps in thinking and our logic growing up. Yeah. And there's like chapters in the book that will be like a whole chapter on one particularly eventful day in their life. And then there'll be literally one sentence that says, and I worked this job for 12 years. (laughs) And by the time you're done, you've lived an entire human's life. And it's so satisfying. And some parts of it are weird and confusing and unbelievable. But like who of us haven't had those things happen in our lives, right? Then you're feeling really satisfied and fulfilled. And you flip to the last page and then you read something 
that completely recontextualizes everything you've been reading. <laughs> That's great. There's a book called Liar by Justine Lavalesi that does that. Halfway through the book, the narrator is like, by the way, here's something I didn't tell you until now, and it completely transforms the first half. It's a really interesting concept. Okay, I have two answers for what is my favorite fictional book. One is a cheat answer, which is The Princess Bride, because The Princess Bride, the book, is excerpts of a larger book that doesn't exist. And so William Goldman is adapting a non-existent book into the book of Princess Bride. And then my second is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That is not to say the fiction book, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, starring Arthur Dent, but the book within that book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is an encyclopedia of the entire universe. What is your favorite fictional book? So my favorite fictional book, have you ever heard of S by J.J. Abrams? I have not. So it's based on a book that was written, quote unquote, in like the 1400s or 1800s or something like that, (laughs) discovered, quote unquote, in a library. And then these people write notes into the margins and stuff like that. There's this whole fictional narrative layered onto this fictional book. And the book was, quote unquote, written back then, but it was manufactured in like 2016. Anyway, it's it's a meta trip. It's really cool. (laughs) That's very cute. That is all for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with some more terminology definitions, which I hope people are liking because you're going to get hours of them. <laughs> uh, anything we want to close on A to the J? Absolutely not. I'm sick to death of talking. <laughs> well, thank you all for uh, being sick to death of listening, and we will be with you in two weeks' time. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.